Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, returning guest. His name is J.P. Holding. We spoke a while back about uh, another of his books. title of that talk was Defending the Resurrection, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? But today, we're going to talk about a book he published in 2014. title is Jesus Was a Mushroom and Other Lies You Won't Believe. And uh, really interesting. I know a lot of people who've gone into John Allegro's work very seriously even though it's been refuted or other scholars have, have uh, debunked it. But I think it's something in the modern uh, worldview these days is a lot of conspiratorial thinking, myself as well. I mean, I've done a lot. I think there's a lot of conspiracies out there. West Memphis 3 is definitely a conspiracy. Uh, but JP and I are probably a little different on 9-11, but we can talk about that too. But there's also a lot of different interpretations, misinterpretations, and ideas that get... Uh, cemented to some concepts and just bandy get bandied about the internet all over so you know we can go into that in greater detail but uh i have a list of other jp holding he's done 20 books and on variety of titles and some of the some of the titles other titles are best evidence for jesus blood moon lunacy christian answers to this generation's questions or a lot of questions scripture and slavery and what in hell is going on and um, so he's written over 20 total books and his website where you can see a lot of those is called Tecton Apologetics Ministries. It's www.tektonics.org and I will put that in the show notes. But again, we're going to talk about this interesting book titled Jesus Was a Mushroom and Otherwise You Won't Believe. So JP Holding, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ray. I'm glad to be back again. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard our earlier conversation can you kind of talk about your background and what led you to write Jesus Was a Mushroom? Okay, let's start with some background. So um, I entered into uh, apologetics uh, relatively early age, uh, back in the early 90s, and then I discovered the Internet later than most people, sometime in the mid-90s. I joined up with a gentleman who owned a website called the Christian Apologetics Bookshelf in 1996. I contributed a few articles. In 1998, he decided that he wanted to spend more time with his family so he gave the website to me and i had to learn hypertext machine language by the seat of my pants and create the web and hold a website uh and that was tectonics.org the website you mentioned uh so from there uh i've been you know, progressing into more different ideas to investigate uh you know along with the traditional topics such as the resurrection and the reliability of the new testament i became interested in other side issues in about 2012 or so, I had a reader of my website who asked me to look into a, uh, a Christian production called The Fuel Project, which uh, involved a lot of belief in conspiracy theories, including many of those that are featured in this book. Uh, that's the topic today. Uh, at the time, I wrote a book responding directly to The Fuel Project series, and uh, then I decided to take some of that and mix it together with some other material uh, I'd had on other conspiracy theories that weren't mentioned by the Fuel Project, and I put them all together into this book. And the title, Jesus Was a Mushroom and Other Lies You Won't Believe, as you mentioned, it was related to John Allegro. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's that's like one of the older conspiracy theory ideas that's out there and was very easily refuted. Uh, Allegro was sort of a crazy scholar who thought the Dead Sea Scrolls had some secret messages in them and that kind of thing, uh, that Jesus was actually a code name for a mushroom that the disciples ingested to have hallucinations. Uh, 
that was such a bad idea that more than a dozen scholars took out an ad in a newspaper uh, telling everyone how crazy they thought that was. So that one was pretty easily taken care of. <laughs> right. And you mentioned Zeitgeist too, which really was very popular. That was a huge internet kind of viral sensation as well. Right. Yes, it was. And there's a long standing joke with that. Uh, my ministry partner, Nick Peters, uh, likes to ask me again and again, are you going to refute the Zeitgeist movie? And the reason he does that is because initially Zeitgeist was full of things related to Christianity that I had already refuted multiple times. And I was sick of dealing with them. And I kept saying, no, I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to address it. And finally, the Christian Research Journal, the uh, magazine of Hank Canegraaff's Christian Research Institute, asked me to go ahead and do a review of it. And so that compelled me to uh, go ahead and view the movie. And uh, it was, as I thought, nothing but nonsense. Uh, so even though the joke's right. out of date, though, Nick will still occasionally ask me if I'm going to review the Zeitgeist movie. <laughs> but it's still around. I mean, those ideas that Christ was a... Uh, representation of these other old ancient gods and deities is still still popularly you know spread about so i mean the, the it, stuff, it the is i didn't get it from it didn't come out of the ether there it was it's always been around that whole argument yeah that's been around since 1800s 1700s depending on who you look at right and i mean you go into really early stuff his lop out how uh, how some of these ideas really do get integrated into the culture and the two babylons is one example right yes it is it is indeed one example it's probably their premier example uh, among uh, christian believers and uh, after reading that i was shocked to find out that it's even endorsed by some major names such as john macarthur oh wow I didn't know. Yeah. Yes. and he 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 went into all these old names and really focused on Nimrod, who really is a side figure in the Bible and really overemphasized him. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, what's what's interesting as well here, another source uh, that was really deeply into this uh, major Christian source that's into us is uh, Chick Tracks, uh, Jack Chick Productions. And uh, for a long time, I read the Chick Tracks uh, just for study purposes. And I saw this stuff about Nimrod and showed a picture of him with a horn on his head. And I'm wondering, where in the world do they get all this? And I didn't learn until much later that the source of this was Alexander Hislop. He was the one uh, who was uh, ultimately Jack Chick's source for this material. Right. And so what was his general uh, thesis? What was Alexander Hislop, Hislop's thesis? Well, ultimately, he was uh, his ultimate purpose was to come out with something that he thought would explain uh, the world order as connected to the Catholic Church. Uh, he was very much uh, against Catholicism. Now, I'm I'm not particular about Catholicism one way or the other, and I haven't studied it in any depth, but I always tell people, if we're going to address Catholic claims and Catholic history, let's do it in an intelligent way and not rely on uh, nonsense of the sort that Hislop produces. But what he was looking for, uh, Hislop, was some way to explain the origins of the Catholic Church as well as uh, you know, other ideas that he had in mind. And so he came up with this whole superstructure that was based on Nimrod and the idea that he was the uh, head of this uh, world-type religion or system that would form the foundation for occultism and for uh, you know, pagan religion throughout history and throughout various cultures. It gets to the point where he saw Nimrod's influence even in places like uh, Polynesian legend. Oh, yeah. wow. Indirectly, well, I, I mean, so. not di not directly, obviously, but you know, through through time and through derivation. 
Right. So he's like in the, the whole Nephilim gets brought into the whole mix, which is very, uh, very current kind of trend. A lot of Nephilim type talk, uh, which I've had other guests on and pretty much debunked any post flood Nephilim stories. I, I don't know. They have to have got like swam on the outside of Noah's Ark or something like that. Sure. People have very, and I think that's very similar. Like they have very strained factual uh, bases and logic with, with some of the things that they want to believe or apply biblical uh, to the Bible, I think. Would you would you agree with a lot of these yeah. type of things? Yeah, that's the sort of thinking that I see uh, constantly in all people who do, who follow conspiracy theories. And I think a quote, I won't read the entirety of it that I have from the that I did for my article in Christian Research Journal. It said it was about Zeitgeist saying it's not so much that Zeitgeist claims a fact are difficult to refute, but it is difficult to convince a Zeitgeist believer that a refutation is actually taking place. Because a mindset comes up that, well, if someone has an answer to it, there's obviously a conspiracy behind that too. There must be a lie. Uh, they must be lying. They must have fabricated evidence that to, to produce this answer. Uh, the academia is lying to us you know, history books are lying to us everyone's lying to us <laughs> so, no it's amazing i've had that yeah. same thing i've talked to two flat earthers and they think that anything that i showed to refute that or an, ad an additional fact was exactly in that context it was created to undermine their truth of the earth is flat i mean so it's kind of like cult thinking it's it's i think it's very important for people to key into that type of thinking too because i mean we some people may not even be fully myself included fully conscious of like trying to get a very objective view um it seems like so i, I mean these are this this book is very current because it there's all that going on in the internet culture, the conspiratorial thinking. People have called me a conspiracy person, a conspiracy. I, I get labeled with that, even though I'm willing to look at other alternate ideas. But um, that's a whole, probably another whole issue. I mean, but there's a lot of very curious thinking going on in the world. And I think that this book has a lot of that stuff in here. But uh, sorry, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, have you, I mean, in your refutation, if you have a logical fact-based re re refutation of a lot of these ideas, how, how can you get through to people who won't believe that you actually have these statements based in fact? Well, I've long ago realized that you can't get through to such people uh, because they will constantly shift the goalposts around. And so that you're punting by the time you've kicked the ball, it's heading through the goalpost. They've already pushed them to the other side of the field so that you didn't score. Uh, so in my mind, most of what I've written this book and other items like it for is for the person who sees this for the first time and says, wow, is there an answer for this? Uh, something that strikes them as odd. And, and they said, well, you know what? This seems like it might have some basis. What, what's the reality? And so it's for, it's for the people. And this is really, I think, as well for apologetics in general, uh, especially now with the Internet making it possible to spread nonsense around so quickly and to enable the people who want to believe it. Uh, mostly when I, I write things like this, it's for that remnant, as you may say, that is actually looking for an honest answer and hasn't already fixed themselves psychologically uh, to the conspiracy idea or whatever other idea it is that they're affixed to. Right. And I mean, I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of that going around. And you talk about the black cube, the all seeing <laughs> eye, and you're thinking, there's a whole, like, almost religious people have become famous for their black cube of Saturn analysis and stuff like that. 
Can you kind of talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I really like that one. The first time I saw that, my first thought that came to mind was the Borg from Star Trek. Uh, I'm wondering if these people are afraid of the Borg or something when they see these cubes. Uh, yeah, the, in general, what this is, is this idea that anytime you see a black cube, it's uh, some sort of symbol of, of the worship of Saturn. And as I said initially, you'd think if this was true, it would show up in some some kind of reference manual on Greek or Roman religion. But I couldn't find any original source uh, from the ancient world that said black cubes were an object of worship. I couldn't find any modern scholarly source that said that black cubes were an object of worship. Uh, and even those who claimed that it was never produced a single quote from any ancient source or any uh, modern scholarly source or from anywhere. Uh, stating these black cubes were actually a, a way to fool you into worshiping pagans. And then there's this idea that all these very black cubes around the world uh, in different contexts are in some way a tribute to Saturn as, a, as pagan religion. And, and these cubes are just, were, are or were, I don't know how many of these are still around in, in 2022, uh, eight years later, uh, they just find them any place and decide that that's it's some sort of altar for Saturn, just put in the middle of nowhere. Right. But I mean, if they did they to apply the black cube of Saturn to Islam, so yes, that black cube you see at the center above the Kaaba is uh, evidence that there's some occult nature. So that's actually a very common theme through your book is that the Catholic stuff has an occult nature, the Israeli Supreme Court has an occulted. So the interpretation of these symbols, there's a lot of false interpretations, right? Yeah, false, false, false imputation of meaning uh, would be a precise way to put it. Yeah. It's deciding that uh, no matter what the no matter what the actual purpose of the object is, and we'll use the black cubes as an example because many of these, besides the one you mentioned for Islam, are so mundane. Uh, it's decided that anytime anyone has erected a black cube anywhere, uh, it was for the purpose of worshiping Saturn. And just to use a couple of the examples that were uh, that came up and what I found out about them, uh, there was one in particular that was in Santa Ana, California, that was part of a science center there. And in looking into it, I found that it was a mechanism for a display for rocket engines and that also generated solar power. And that's the official explanation you'll find on the website for that museum. Uh, but their theory is that somehow these people built this black cube uh, to worship Saturn. Um Another one that I thought was really funny was uh, a black cube that they found outside the Apple computer store in New York City. Well, if you look up that location now, you'll see there's a transparent cube. Apparently, it had been covered in black for a while while they were doing some kind of construction, and now it's clear. So I don't know if that was uh, – maybe the conspiracy was only temporary there. And the funniest one of all, in my mind, was one that was in Denmark uh, that was located in a city uh, called – I don't want to try to pronounce it but I'll spell it S-V-E-N-D-B-O-R-G. Uh, it so happened I had a friend in Denmark who knew about that, and he said, well, that thing's pretty much an embarrassment to us. Uh, it was just a sculpture that was built in 1983, and uh, it's, there was a lot of controversy whether it even ought to have been built at all. And one local, according to a magazine article, was supposed to have said it was the worst thing that happened to that city since the Nazis invaded. <laughs> so, so they're they're around in different things. So these cubes are all uh, evidence that there's a secret group of Masonic or something. There's a there's a Saturnine cult putting these cubes out to express Saturn's 
greatness or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and that one, in, in, the one there, for example, was just a geometric sculpture, typical of the guy who put it together. And it's this type of thinking also leads me to wonder, uh, they talk about how these black cubes were placed secretly as uh, objects to worship Saturn. And I'm thinking, what is the purpose of doing this anyway? I mean, putting these black cubes out in the open like this, and if no one knows that they're altars to Saturn, what exactly is the point? Uh, (laughs) Seeing a black cube like that certainly doesn't persuade me that Saturn ought to be worshipped. Uh, right, and, it's just like a, it's just like a box, right? Yeah, it's just a box. It's just sitting there. I mean, and one of these that was in also in New York, it you could t- actually physically turn it, and the artist had in mind that you could physically take hold of it and turn it. Like, it was sort of a fun thing to do. It's like I don't think, and when when you think about the pagan gods like Saturn and their attitudes, I don't think they would be too happy with that. <laughs> it doesn't quite fit. It's not too obvious. No. Th- yeah. So that's just one example because people in my worldview also misinterpret the all-seeing eye. They always see anything in sinister. So even if they see the all-seeing eye in an old 16th or 17th century church, that has an occult, you know, uh, reference. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'll make this point first. Um, You know, who made the eye? You and I both agree that God made the eye, okay? And so whose property, if, if, if the eye were copyrighted or registered, who would own it? God. They, yeah, God would own it. Exactly. So God has the ultimate control over this thing. So if some pagan religion claimed the all seeing eye as as its as its mod, as its theme, you know, would, would that mean that God would have to stop using it? <laughs> Obviously yeah. not. No, not at all. But there is like a perversion of like cruelly perverted the use of the all seeing eye and, and superimposed the eye of Horus in there. So that's what also confuses other people is that there's different usages in different contexts. It's a black, it's an intentionally blasphemous thing. It was a blasphemer, but uh, yeah, he was good at at inventing stuff like that. And the, one of the ironies is that even the eye of Horus, as you mentioned, it wasn't an all seeing eye. Uh, The story was that Horus had lost his eye in a battle with another deity. And it was restored to him later on with powers of health and protection. So it wasn't all seeing. You know, it was more like a protection, a protective talisman. So, so mixing all these different ideas together makes it you know, even even less impressive when, when the conspiracy theorists come across and, and claim all the meaning that they put into it. Right. But, I mean, you talk about the obelisk, the measurements are off in, in Washington, but there's still a lot of like things in washington like i mean you refute to the whole notion of like a downward facing pentagram and the law in fonts plan but there i mean there are obelisks in almost every major metropolitan area right in the world right i mean there's obelisks all over the place that have been put up why have they been put up uh, they have become uh, in the general answer to that um, their initial use was you might say as notice boards and the shape itself is supposed to be like frozen sun, frozen beam of sunlight pointing down. And the idea there being that we want to draw attention to what this is that we're showing you. You know, we want you to come read whatever this is on the side, like a notice board. Now, from there, architecturally, uh, they became something more general, which was like just sort of a marker. I mean, you say, yes, they're everywhere. I, I'm thinking now of a park right near me. My wife and I passed in the car on my way home to, to do this 
if you go into the park and you go to a certain spot there, you'll see this very old squat, about knee-high obelisk. And it's made of stone, and it's got some kind of number on it. Now, I don't know exactly what it was, but from the looks of it, it was some kind of property marker or some kind of survey marker. And that's, you know, that's a, if, if you ask one of these conspiracy theorists, there's somebody who put that there to encourage us to worship some pagan deity. And yet, again, I walk into the park there, I see this thing with a number on it. I think, oh, that's it. You know, I, I'm not going to think of any pagan deity when, when that thing pops up or when I pass by it. Right. It's just I mean, some kind of marker, yeah. Yeah, but it's a marker, but that's also right there in the center of St. Peter's Square. I think that obelisk was brought to Rome by um, Caligula, actually, was the one in the St. Peter's Square. So there's, there is a, there's some interesting prior paganism in in Rome, no doubt. But yeah, yeah. there's no obelisk in almost every major city. Yeah. Yeah, yes, you're correct. Caligula was the one who brought it in 37 AD. He claimed it from Egypt. And then one of the popes, uh, Sixtus V, in 1586, uh, he had it moved to Rome. And what? here's another theme that we can refer to here. Triumphant reclamation is what I call it. You know, just because some pagan has consecrated something like that doesn't mean it stays pagan. Uh, you know, you can, what many of the popes had in mind to do when they did things like this, and many early Christians as well, they would reclaim an object and redesignate its purpose for God. Uh, let me give you an example from one of those other ideas of you know, Christ supposedly being a pagan copycat figure. Uh, the, the, the worshippers of Mithra had this scene where uh, Mithra was slaying the cosmic bull. Uh, as sort of a competition to that, and as sort of a game of one-upsmanship, the church redid that as a picture of Samson slaying a lion. And you know, the idea was, well, you know, these gods are false. Here's the real and genuine situation that you should have a look at instead and, and for much the same reason that's why they went ahead and claimed that obelisk they redesignated it from being a pagan symbol to being a symbol of humanity reaching out to christ now you know you may say well that seems kind of a stretch maybe it is but you know, that's what their purpose was they wanted to reclaim that for god who after all did own it in the first place he's the one who made the stones <laughs> that put the obel that were used to put the obelisk together and so it's definitely a way to honor God rather than to uh, encourage pagan worship. Right. I've heard that rationale is pertaining yes. to the obelisk. And that was Hernan Cortez. Every temp, uh, pyramid there got scraped off. Christian church, all of the people who were with him. So he reclaimed a lot of that stuff. Same thing happened in the States, too, in America, where they had old ruins and things like that. So uh, exactly, it doesn't mean that they're like maintaining these secret esoteric meanings or something like that but i mean that's the same thing with this whole pyramid have you ever heard the great pyramid thing like the the, the cubes in the pyramid pertain to ages this was actually a, a, a common kind of christian thing one day where like the pyramids laid out the plan of creation have you ever heard that old story i've i've heard a similar idea that from the 50s uh one fellow used it to use the pyramids to decide when the end times would be, and he decided that they were going to be very soon. I forget his exact name. That's one thing I've run across. But, yeah, I've seen the pyramids, and I believe, uh, was it the Jehovah's Witnesses who had ideas related to that, possibly? Right, yeah. yeah. It was like a late time. There was a late time preacher here in Los Angeles who did that, and he would scribble on the wall and tell everybody this and then tell them to get on the phone and send money. Yeah, so it's those, those ideas around. Th these are ideas that are really populated 
a lot of Christian Christianity. I mean, I, I spell it Christian dumb, like Christian C H R I S T E N D U M B. Yes, it's kind of a form of Christian dumb, but it's it's not biblical. This whole great, you know, the Great Pyramid stuff, and um, and other things like. This like uh, there's a lot of kind of anti-Catholic animus too. Like you go into Constantine and translations. Can you talk about that and how they're not cons- really that conspiratorial? Yeah, well, let's talk about Constantine. That's that is one of my favorite topics. Uh, I even made a vid- made a video out of it. I compare it. Said is Constantine like Emperor Palpatine? Was he uh, like Darth Vader's boss? Was he the evil emperor? And you know, they're after you know, to sum it up, you know, I looked into his life. I looked into the ideas he had. Constantine, I think, was a genuine Christian convert, but he wasn't particularly bright. I mean, he was a military grunt. He wasn't that interested in the fine details of theology. He wanted to arrange for peace, uh, you know, in the new empire that he that he oversaw, and so he wanted to get things settled. And so he wasn't necessarily as attentive as he should have been uh, towards uh, theological niceties. But nevertheless, you know, he tried what as best he could to, to change things. So, uh, you know, you look at some of these ideas uh, that he, uh, you know, that he had about. You know, I remember one of the one of the things that was cited was that apparently there were certain coins uh, that were minted under his reign that still preserve certain uh, mottos that were used under paganism, and they're like, well, why didn't he change those? You know, he was still a pagan. Well, it's not that simple. Uh, because you know, the mints who made these coins often had their own authority to mint them. And not only that, you know, it takes a long time. Even today, you can imagine how long it would take to change. You see how long it's been taking to change the dollar bills. Right. You know, it, it's, a long, yeah, it's a long, complicated process. How much more complicated would it have been when the engraving tools were you know, you know, much for a much simpler time? And I don't know exactly what technology they used, but I'm sure it was some kind of like stamping or impression that they used. And so to, to mint new coins, they would have had to create a whole new infrastructure, so to speak, in the mint. And they're not going to do that overnight. In the meantime, people still need coins. And so they're going to continue to use the imprint that has the pagan motto on it until they can fix things up. Right. So, I mean, and that's it. And then, like, they always inter- uh, apply to Constantine that he was disingenuous that he really genuinely didn't convert. He was using Christianity for his own nefarious plans and all kinds of stuff like that. So a lot of things are written into kind of his uh, life that, that may not be the case. And I mean, I think Christianity was rising there. So it's about the third century after Christ. So a lot more people were Christian at that time than at the very beginning of the, of the, of the faith. And also there's a lot of translation things that people think that the Bible, they talk about, you know, these there's lost books, lost pieces, poor translations. Can you talk about that? Oh my word! I could talk about that for five hours. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. There's so many. You know, so it's ironic that you should mention this because one of my longtime readers uh, wrote me a note just this morning asking me about this. Uh, he said, "Well, I have a friend who says she's reading this thing called the Book of Thoth, and she says that it tells you all kinds of great things about the Bible." And I'm like, okay, well, I look, I've never heard this before. I know about Thoth being the Egyptian deity. <clears throat> but I look it up, and I find, like, there's multiple books with you know, going under Book of Thoth. And I wrote back to my friend. I said, well, can you ask which Book of Thoth she has to mind? Because there's hundreds of these things. 
And he writes back to me this morning. He says, oh, it's this the Emerald Book of Thoth. Oh. Okay. So I looked that up, and it said, the first thing I read in the description is Thoth was, this Thoth was not the Egyptian god. He was an Atlantean priest who lived in 36,000 BC. I'm like, okay, I'm done. It's like that fast. <laughs> yeah, but, and yet this, this friend of mine's friend is saying, you know, I believe this stuff, and it gives me great insight into the Bible. Uh, you know, if, where are you? Why are you picking this up? I mean, why, why would you think even think this was a reliable source or that it was genuine? Uh, I don't know what kind of educational background this person had or what they were taught about critically thinking of sources, but one of the key problems we have right now is that people are not critical with sources, they believe anything that they've already decided they want to believe and they don't investigate to any degree. And that's happening with Christian circles. That's happening in atheist circles. It's a universal problem. Right. People just pick up and they're mismatched. And I mean, I think it's like in, in an environment that we're in now with information overload is that people aren't grading these uh, things like, why is the, why do we have the current corpus of these texts? Why are these all acceptable? Why aren't they? And it's, I mean, that, I guess that problem really existed really when they started to compile all the works of the Bible, like what should go in and what shouldn't, right? Yeah, well, they, you know, sure. There were many, there were other candidate books that were considered, such as, and some of them are pretty decent, like the Shepherd of Hermas. And, you know, they're, they're, they were written with, a, some of them, like Shepherd of Hermas, were written with a good purpose. Uh, but ultimately, and not all the books that were, you know, suggested as candidates were necessarily corrupt or problematic. But ultimately, you know, the purpose of a Canaan, I like to say, is, you know, another C word, convenience. You're putting together things that are, that are true and relevant uh, to what you're doing. And so in the biblical canon, you, know, you, you can see why something like the Gospel of Matthew would be in there, because if it has the truth about Jesus, you'd want it in there. And it's relevant because Matthew is a follower of Jesus, and he has a lot of information about Jesus. On the other hand, your grocery list is true, but it's not relevant. <laughs> you, know, you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't put that in the canon because it's not relevant to, uh, to Christianity at all. Uh, so... And related to this, of course, is that you know some books are of different genres, and so you know a book like Proverbs might belong in the Canaan. Well, it's with Proverbs, it's not necessarily a matter of things that are true or false because Proverbs are by nature proverbs; <laughs> they're just a sort of just you know random sayings, you might say. Uh, so, yeah, but there's other books like the Gospel of Thomas. I mean, there's like a sort of like a target. You know, have some things in the center, and then as you go out. In concentric circles, you have things that are less and less true or less and less relevant. Then you get books like the Gospel of Thomas uh, that have Jesus saying, sounding like a hippie of some kind uh, from, from the third century. So, yeah. And one of the popular books for this as well is the Book of Jasher. <laughs> now, that's another one I could write, I could talk about for a while. Right. Now, so why is the Book of Jasher not in the canon? <laughs> well, now, there's two things we should mention. First of all, there's a book of Jasher mentioned in the Old Testament. That's not what uh, people are talking about. The book of Jasher they're talking about usually is a forgery that was done in the medieval era. Uh, that has nothing to do with the book that was written in, in the Old Testament times. Uh, now, some people like to use that one because uh, they use it to support some of Hislop's ideas. And it says in that book of Jasher that 600,000 people took part in the construction of the Tower of Babel. That is found in that medieval forged, forgery version of the book of Jasher. And so that's why they use it. It's not because they've 
discovered that the book, this is actually a reliable book by someone named Jasher in the Old Testament period. They use it because it has some piece of information in it that they find useful to support what they want to believe. Right. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just going to be a recurrent problem all the way to the end of time as people putting stuff in there. What's your uh, big G J 21 asked, what's your opinion of the book of Enoch? Um, I did some studies on that some years ago. Um, if you talk, you know, assuming, assuming we're not talking about another edition written later, but we're talking about the one from the first century thereabouts. Right. Yeah. Uh, I have the idea based on how often it was added to and how often it was, uh, you know, how many people, you know, both Jews and Christians who made use of it, that it was sort of like a popular piece that was you know, spread around as sort of like a, you might say kind of like a fantasy novel uh, would be today. And I th- it was like sort of like one of those things. Uh, there's a, like a sort of a story, sort of a game like Mad Libs, where you or there used to be a thing on like online forums where people would add to a story. <laughs> you know, you'd write one paragraph, and then someone else would come along and sign in and add another paragraph, and you'd, you'd end up with something pretty hilarious a lot of the times. And I think uh, Book of Enoch was in many ways like that. Uh, it would. Yeah, you know, it gave gives us some insight into what certain people thought might have been true or might have made an interesting story, but there's not there's no clear indication that anyone intended it to take it seriously as history. Uh, although there may have been conspiracy theorists in that time and place who did. <laughs> probably are there probably have been conspiracy theorists all the way through time, but I think that e- the Ethiopian Church has included the book of Enoch in their canon, like they, their view is different. So uh, I believe you're right. And well, considering that they're a fair distance from where the events occurred uh, and both in time and space, I, I question the, the wisdom of that decision, but right. and they have a huge church. I mean, that's, that's a yeah. pretty interesting differentiation, but uh, yeah, we're at about, what is it? We're at 33 minutes. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, do you, we can go into the U S Illuminati Catholics, political conspiracies. There's a lot of information in this book for sure. Yeah. Oh, let me think now. Okay, the Illuminati. Now that's 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 a pretty funny thing. Let me go ahead and dig the, those references out because uh, that was itself that was something I learned for the first time when I did research for this book. Uh, if you believe the conspiracy theorists, the Illuminati are still around right now, and uh, they're causing all kinds of mischief. The actual history of of the group which was real is that they began in the 1700s with a fellow named Adam Weishaupt. And uh, it, it was more, I would describe it more as a uh, social political kind of movement. Uh, he was like something somewhat radical in some of his ideas. And he was trying to spread them around. But ultimately what happened uh, is that uh, he, he got, he got as a sort of an assistant, uh, a German baron who, uh, basically turn, was trying to turn the movement into a party party school <laughs> he was more into having you know fun you know fun meetings than he was into you know, doing any radical change but ultimately the this movement if you want to call it a movement i'll call it just a group of the illuminati you know came to an end in 1787 uh people got tired of them and they basically suppressed them to non-existence by that time but you know as one particular historian of conspiracy theory said, within five years, their whole industry emerged with over 50 books, uh, which made up all kinds of wild claims about this group, doing all kinds of things, including being behind the French Revolution. Right. And for all I knew, all I know, maybe there was there were swag stores back then, you know, selling Illuminati T-shirts or 
or I quit the Illuminati you know, key change or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> right. So, there's still like a variant out there today. There's still kind of a recruitment that tries to claim they're going back to the original Illuminati. But uh, yeah, they weren't that influential over time. There was a rumor that they infiltrated the Masonic churches and influenced the French Revolution and things like that. But it's, it's all too easy to you know, resort to such explanations. But I think, even though I was joking about the T-shirts and the keychains, I think there might be part of an explanation in, in there as well. Uh, but I think we can agree that uh, paranoia can be a big seller. And yeah. so, uh, you know, selling swag for things like this uh, can make you a lot of money. I mean, Zeitgeist alone had millions of views, millions upon millions of views on YouTube. Yeah, tens and, of millions. And I'm, and I'm sure uh, the, the fellow who created it uh, earned a lot of money from that. I think that he did the Zeitgeist 2 and 3, if I remember. I don't think I saw him, but I think that the Zeitgeist, uh, you know, what is it, series took place. I can't remember. But, I, yeah, he was around for a while. I don't know what happened to him, but. They yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Um, and where's the best place for people to get this book, JP? All right. Well, uh, the best place to get it is on Amazon.com because it is a Kindle ebook. And so you want to go to uh, Amazon and put in Jesus was a mushroom. And I'm sure it will be the first thing that come up, as I'm sure there are not too many books that have those two words in the title like that. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, your other books too. You have other books debunking, refuting certain things. Blood Moon, um, what's going on with slavery? Easter is pagan and other fables. So there's a lot of things like those are those are all over the place. That whole Easter is a pagan thing. Christian Christmas took over some other. This, this is another example of a date, but the Christian uh, Christmas took over another holiday, a pagan holiday, right? Yeah, that's one of the big rumors now. Yeah, you're right. I have a whole book on that, too. But it, it, to, to the extent that that may be true, that could be seen as a form of, again, triumphant reclamation. Like right. uh, the, the analogy I use is if JCPenney has a sale on in October on October 3rd, then you can bet that uh, Kmart's going to have a sale the same day to make sure that their own shoppers are kept occupied. Uh, you know, it's up in the air whether Jesus was born on December 25th. Uh, unfortunately, people at that time, unless they were very wealthy, had no way to keep track of the calendar and no idea. Most many people could not tell you, uh, even in many cultures today, could not tell you the exact date they were born. And so it didn't really matter what date they picked. So uh, December 25th has a one in the 365 chance of being right. So there you go. <laughs> Those are decent odds. Uh, we still Plato Snakes asks, "What are your thoughts on Zeitgeist upon Jordan Maxwell? Are you familiar with him and his teachings?" I am. I have only heard of Jordan Maxwell a couple of times. I did not look into his material. I just didn't have time to look into that. I took too many other things uh, that I was looking into. Uh, I think he he was a Blavatsky. What is it? The Theosophist or something like that. Yeah. Uh, a little. I. I looked into theosophy when I was like 16 or 17. It didn't take me long to decide it wasn't worth my effort. Yeah, she's she's been debunked. She uh, had some interesting ideas. But, you know, <laughs> love of Prometheus, which you can figure out who that symbolizes. I mean, that's that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, you actually talk about Spangler, Matria, Benjamin Cream, and some of these other characters around. I mean. Do you want to wrap up talking about them or your thoughts about them? I'll talk about Benjamin Cream because there's a some very interesting history there. Uh, when I was a Christian very early on, you know, I, there was a book that was put out called Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow by Constance Cumbie. 
Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read that book? No, I have not. <laughs> well, re if you read it now, it's so interesting to go back and read some of these books of the time, like Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow. Another one that I really enjoyed reading again from that time was Phil Phillips' Turmoil in the Toy Box. Uh, and that, that had all kinds of ideas that you know toys being given to people were uh, given to their kids were like teaching them to worship Satan. Uh, there was an example that I can't resist giving one example, even though it's not related to this book. Uh, he made a big deal of the fact that uh, He-Man uh, said things like, by the power of Grayskull. And Phillips made this solemn pronouncement that the Bible does not mention the power of Grayskull. Well, okay. That's, I didn't, I wouldn't expect it to. I mean, okay. But uh, as far as Benjamin Cream, you know, I'm, and I'm mentioning Cumbie because Benjamin Cream was a concern when Cumbie wrote her book and she made a big deal about him. And what happened is that on April 25th, 82, his organization uh, took out some full page ads in newspapers declaring the crisis now here, now here, and that he would soon send out a telepathic address to the world. Now, of course, uh, Cumbia and many like her assumed that this was the Antichrist who was going to come out of the, come out of the nowhere and, and that Cream would be like his disciple, so to speak. Well, 27 years later, when I wrote that book, and I haven't checked up on him lately, but maybe I should, Cream is still plugging this telepathic address and saying, it's coming soon, it's coming soon. And I'm like, well, where is it then? I mean, who is still following this guy? Actually, not really anybody. Um, I found there was a meeting that he spoke to in Detroit, uh, which attracted maybe 800 people. And that's from a metro area at the time that had 4 million people. So I don't think uh, Benjamin Cream <laughs> is really that much of a threat. Uh, but Cumbie and others like her acted like uh, this was a very serious problem. And you mentioned David Spangler, the same thing. I mean, you look into these people, they really don't have that much of a following. No one really pays that much attention to them. Uh, it, it's, it's like, I guess you could call them Antichrist wannabes, if anything else. <laughs> but I would be looking... Yeah, pay them so much, uh, give them so much credence. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And anything you'd like to add, or anything I missed before we wrap this up, JP? Well, uh, I don't have anything in particular to add at this point, but I do appreciate having been on again. It's been a pleasure to be with you to talk about these subjects. Uh, you know, one of the things that's very close to me uh, as a subject of concern is making sure that people get good information. And there are so many, so many corrupt and so many. Uh, poor sources of information out there. Uh, but it, there's a will to believe things all too readily and all too easily. Uh, one of the great contributors to this, I believe, is, I call it the abomination that causes misinformation, Wikipedia. Uh, there's nothing so horrendous to me as a, as a librarian by trade, as a reference source that anyone can pick up and scribble into it whatever they want. Right, so people got to be wary. People are credulous, and a lot of people are just looking around for to get their ears tickled. So they yes. have to kind of watch out. And again, there's a lot more information in this book. We barely covered all the stuff. You really went in detail on a lot of other uh, topics and issues. Again, the title of the book is "Jesus Was a Mushroom and Other Lies You Won't Believe," and the author again is J.P. Holding. And I will put a link to the book and his website in the show notes. So, J.P., thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Right. I think you too. Stay there. Stay there. Okay. So